This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we look at some reports that have put the Mayor of Wellington under pressure. She's acknowledged an alcohol problem, partly prompted by media questions about a night out two weeks ago, about which still very little is clear. One of the bar's owners there that night says the Mayor was just having a good night. I just really do not like the fact that people can't go out, no matter what your status is, and just have a good time. Also, just as the government gets going, TV current affairs shows are grinding to a halt. How come? From our final studio programme this election year, thank you for watching. We'll be back next year, Aotearoto, but until then we hope your holidays are restful. But first, maybe it was only a matter of time, but it didn't take long this week for Winston Peters' news media grievances to make headlines and headaches for the new government. Do you go along to the sw- uh, swearing-in today, the signing? I did. I did go along there in Government House. It was. Uh, I didn't go to the one in 2020 because I... Well, did I? I can't remember. But back in 2017 was the first one. And, you know, the novelty wears off pretty quickly. It's just a bunch of people reading a, a bunch of words. But it does have obvious significance here. That was News Talk ZB political editor Jason Walls who said he can take or leave that ceremonial stuff that goes with the swearing-in of our governments, as happened last Monday. But as he said there, this is a new government promising a new direction and it's also delivered us a new leader. Or has it? Prime Minister Chris Hipkins is now no longer incoming Prime Minister, but just Prime Minister. You just called him Chris Hipkins. Oh, my goodness. It's going to happen all the time because Chris (laughs) and Chris, that's what happens. All right, so, so they're in. What happens now? Just a slip-up there from Jason Walls and no biggie. And even maybe no surprise given how long the media went on about Chris versus Chris during the election campaign. And the swearing-in is usually all about people reading stuff off a script, as Jason Walls said there. But on Monday, New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters went off script on the news media, guaranteeing himself a spot at the top of the bulletins that night. A new government was sworn in today, but the old Winston Peters turned up, accusing the outgoing government of bribing the media, and he issued an indirect order to state broadcasters to stop using te reo Māori. That was how News Hub at 6 began last Monday, and then there was this about rolling back te reo from Mr Peters. How quickly do you expect government departments and government agencies to, to act in well, we'll removing speak, we'll te reo Māori? We'll speak with TVNZ and RNZ, which are taxpayer owned, understand this new message. We'll see that whether these people, with the media and journalists, are they independent? Well, that's not fascinating. I've never seen the evidence of that last three years. Now, to some, that nudge was a veiled instruction to state-owned RNZ and TVNZ, something that a cabinet minister is really not supposed to do. And when pushed on that notion of independence, which is protected by law, well, then came Winston Peters' wider claims that the news media have been corrupted by the $55 million over the past three years doled out by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which was characterised by News Hub's political editor, Jenna Lynch, this way. Outlandishly and incorrectly claiming the government had, quote, bribed the media through the Public Interest Journalism Fund. You can't defend $55 million of bribery. Repeating for effect. No, 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 you cannot defend $55 million of bribery. And that set off a chain of events and reactions that kept Mr Peters' claims in the headlines for two more days and even sparked the resignation of a former TVNZ executive from the board of New Zealand On Air after he called Winston Peters a thug in response. Now, during the election campaign, Winston Peters pledged to sort out TVNZ in a cranky pre-election TVNZ interview in which he hinted at taking the broadcasting portfolio himself to get that done. And at that point, New Zealand First was also running an online petition calling for a Royal Commission of Inquiry into media manipulation and bias. 
and just after that TV interview, that was inserted into New Zealand First's election manifesto, though it didn't materialise in the actual government coalition agreement, so presumably it wasn't in the end a bottom line. But while Mr Peter's antipathy towards the news media was expected to emerge at some point once he was in government, the Parliamentary Press Gallery really didn't expect it to emerge within one hour of day one. And Newshub's Jenna Lynch reckoned it was conduct unbecoming of a Deputy Prime Minister on Newshub at six that night. Credit may have been okay for Winston Peters to have a lash at media on the election campaign, but this is something different. He is the Deputy Prime Minister, and this is about democracy. It is also unbecoming of a Deputy Prime Minister to falsely accuse the media of taking bribes from a government. And you can bet your bottom dollar that this particular Deputy Prime Minister and serial litigant Winston Peters would at least threaten to haul someone through the courts if the same baseless accusation was levelled at him. Jenna Lynch and other journalists also pointed out that what Mr Peters claimed would actually be breaking the laws governing the two state-owned broadcasters and would also be in breach of broadcasting standards overseen by the Broadcasting Standards Authority, which is also backed up by the law, and the broadcaster's own editorial principles. Hayden Donnell ran through how all that unfolded last Wednesday on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with Knights here on RNZ National. And while he was at it, he also pointed out that it wasn't that long ago that National Party politicians, who are now also in power, were also raising questions about the Public Interest Journalism Fund's capacity to corrupt the news in the government's favour. And among them was our newly minted Minister of Broadcasting. So the question was, if a minister or the prime minister threatened to actually pull your public interest journalism funding, would you run the story, is the question. 100%. The amount of funding we gets around the drinks. <laughs> Thanks for that question. Well, that was TVNZ's chief executive, Kevin Kenrick, telling the National Party's Melissa Lee back in 2021 there was no chance that the small sums on offer from the Public Interest Journalism Fund would skew TVNZ's political coverage. You can hear all that and much more in this week's Midweek Media Watch. If you missed it last Wednesday, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free wherever you get your podcasts. Now, this week, Mr Peters, when pressed, didn't offer a single example of the corrupted conduct or journalism that he'd alleged, and neither did most of those who reckoned he might have a point. And after the first Cabinet meeting on Tuesday, which media were invited to attend as a photo opportunity, Mr Peters doubled down to reporters. Before you ask one more question, tell the public what you signed up to to get the money. This called transparency, OK? Appropriate, Mr Luxon. Thank you. On News Talk ZB, political editor Jason Walls told the host Heather Duplessis Allen this. He's, he's appealing to the conspiracy theorists who believe that the money, the 55 million, was used to buy off the media. Yeah, it's, it's just utter right. garbage. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. But maybe in the spirit of contrarian talkback, Heather Duplessis Allen decided that the guy who was peddling what she'd just called conspiracy nonsense also had a point about biased reporting. It's just a function of living in Wellington. It's full of public servants and people who all think the same. They all agree furiously with each other over glasses of wine at post-work functions. They're all from the same political class. They all went to university. They mostly all came from middle-class families. Basically, do not spend enough time in the South Island and the Upper North Island, which is basically the rest of the real world. T-minus 10 years, that was me, right? I was at those functions. I was living in Wellington. Basically, honestly, I was thinking exactly the same as they do. So apparently all journalists need to do is leave Wellington to cure themselves of wokeness and public service influence. 
But while Winston Peters didn't make it explicit when he referred darkly to what the Public Interest Journalism Fund recipients had to sign up to, it was nothing to do with that. It was this. That money came with strings attached, right? The most contentious of those strings is taking the money required the media outlet to endorse a particular view of the treaty. Now, that is highly problematic because there isn't just one particular view of the treaty. There are multiple views of the treaty, and so it's wrong to force any media outlet to endorse just one view. That looks bad. Frankly, it is being influenced in editorial content. But the terms of the Public Interest Journalism Fund didn't force the media to endorse a version of the treaty, as Heather Duplessis-Ellen said there. Guidelines issued in advance did say the fund must actively promote the principles of partnership, participation and active protection under Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Now what Heather Duplessis-Ellen's own company, NZME, actually signed up to was spelled out a little better in an article by ZB stablemates at The Herald last Tuesday. Reporter Raphael Franks explained that applicants to the fund were asked to support the principles of Te Tiriti o Waitangi when appropriate in producing funded content. However, a clause specifically requested by NZME acknowledged its absolute editorial independence like this. We acknowledge the importance of your editorial discretion as a media entity and confirm nothing in this agreement will limit or in any way impede or influence the ability of your news reporting functions to report and comment on news stories and current events, including those involving us, as you see fit. So in other words, what Heather Duplessis-Allen had called the strings attached were not actually very strong strings. And coincidentally, that Herald story notes that the author of it, Raphael Franks, is an Auckland-based reporter who joined the Herald just last year as a cadet from Teretor, a journalism training programme established to boost numbers of Māori and other underrepresented groups in journalism. And Teretor is funded by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. ZB's Heather Duplessis-Allen, though, was far from the only one saying the media shouldn't have touched the Public Interest Journalism Fund money. Former National Minister Stephen Joyce, for example, told ZB's Mike Hosking Breakfast the same thing. The media put itself into the position by taking the fund in the first place, which I have to say during my time in the media would never do. And I think it would have been easier if they hadn't. Um, I think, yeah, there are some journalists uh, who are a bit predisposed to the left. There's probably a few that are a bit predisposed to the right, but I don't think the fund will have changed that. But just the appearance of the media being paid money to do its job, I think is problematic. But even in Stephen Joyce's time in a national-led government, the public money paid to media companies for content, the bulk of them privately owned, climbed well above $250 million a year without loud complaints about compromising their ability to bite the political hand that was feeding them. And it was years ago, under a national-led government, that New Zealand On Air changed its remit to fund current affairs TV programmes from the public purse. Initially, those had been excluded to avoid financial dependence on public money, but that changed when the broadcasters just stopped making them and New Zealand On Air recast political programmes like Q&A and The Nation as special interest. Now on Morning Report on Tuesday, the leader of the opposition, Chris Hipkins, claimed that Winston Peters had been part of the Labour-led government that first devised the Public Interest Journalism Fund in 2020, though on Wednesday, Mr Peters himself told NZME's The Country Show he wouldn't have a bar of it when he was in government. NZME, the company I contract myself to, did get a bit of a handout like most leading media companies. And your point is? My point is, was there any bribery at all? 
or is this just was this the government of the day, uh, of which you were a member, I think, under Jacinda Ardern, helping out an industry in need, as we did during COVID times? Well, first of all, there is a statement that you make that it's not a fact. What happened was that they came to us when I was Deputy Prime Minister, Brian Robinson did, and wanted to bring this into force. And we were alarmed and said to him, you've got to be joking. Everybody will accuse us of bribing the media. And New Zealand First Jenny Marcroft, who's now the Undersecretary for Broadcasting in the new government, told a pre-election debate on the media just last month New Zealand First had opposed it and even stalled it. We know that the Public Interest Journalism Fund became weaponised. $55 million that Minister Jackson put into that. And although I know that he was trying to help support journalism, the industry did not sell it very well and it became weaponised. We stopped it when New Zealand First was in government with Labour because uh, the minister at the time wanted it to go out eight weeks before the election and we said that will be used as a bribe for the media. That's how it will go. So we said, no, you can't have that. Other opponents of the Public Interest Journalism Fund were highlighting that perception problem right from the start, especially with reference to the principles of tetidity being in the mix. Former newspaper editor Carl Dufresne, for example, called it a political project, and writing about the dangers of putting the media on the government's payroll, Graham Adams said any journalist who wanted to revisit dissenting views on the treaty as a partnership would be out of luck. But would they? And would proposals wanting to explore contentious issues like, say, Hair Puapua be considered for Public Interest Journalism Fund funding or deemed to be undermining of tetiriti principles? After the Public Interest Journalism Fund's first funding round, I put that question to its boss, Raywin Rash. We absolutely want to encourage conversation in this sphere, but we want to ensure that that conversation is fair and that it is actually coming from an understanding of what tetiriti is actually about so that we're not just getting into um, a polarised debate where we, where we get into a debate where actually both sides of the story can be told. I don't see why that would be a bad thing. The fund does not editorialise how they cover things, you know, or what they cover or what they say in their coverage. It does require that they understand tetiriti principles. So if you understand tetiriti principles and you want to be critical of those principles then well and good. But actually many media organisations do not understand tetidity and therefore the conversations that they are curating uh, run the risk of being biased, racist and not delivering to the tetidity partner that is Māori or tangata whenua. But while Raywin Rash said there was no editorial interference in news media receiving funding, it didn't mean that the funder doesn't influence or amend proposals seeking funding. One of the first projects to be funded was called Fault Lines, billed as an exploratory journalism project looking at the science behind the risks of a rupture of the Alpine Fault. And in 2021, I'd assumed that that wouldn't have a treaty or specific Māori element to it, though Raywin Rash told me, not so. Yes, it does. I mean, that's the thing. Tetidity actually comes into everything. When we um, first looked at that proposal, we noted that there was no Māori content in that proposal at all. So we went back to the um, proposers and, and had a chat, and actually, you know, what they've come back with was is fantastic. And they are, you know, the project is stronger because now they have some um, engagement with Naitahu. Naitahu, Naitahu have, absolutely have lots of experience of of the earthquake situation and, and how it affects their communities. 
I think we've strengthened that proposal because now it has one element of it that will actually provide to Māori audiences and also provide uh, a viewpoint that um, other audiences may not have seen before. So I think that strengthens it. I don't think it made them... uh, It wasn't a requirement that, that was onerous, and in fact, I think they would say themselves that actually it's, it's, it's a good thing. So people might end up putting proposals forward that might have no identifiable Māori element uh, or, or consciousness in it. And in that instance, the proposal might be considered, but whoever proposed it might get feedback. Well, look, why don't you amend it in this way to include? Here are some perspectives you may not have thought about. Please include these in your final product. And yes, then it can be considered. Is that the way it works? Yeah, and I think, you know, the whole idea around asking organisations to think, you know, to have a tertiary lens at the very heart of their organisation means that we wouldn't have to have these conversations. I'm not sure why in 2021 I need to explain to media that actually it's important that Māori voices are seen and heard. That was Raywin Rash, former head of the Public Interest Journalism Fund, talking to me on Media Watch in mid-2021 about fault lines preparing for the rupture. Now, that was produced by the Nelson-based Vanishing Point Studios in collaboration with six different news organisations, and it also appeared in print in North and South magazine. And the online multimedia production won this year's Voyager Award for Best Innovation in Digital Storytelling. But while the funders' intervention there did ensure Māori perspectives and people were present in that, the spending could scarcely be considered effective bribery for the government of the day. Now, Even the government that funded the Public Interest Journalism Fund backed away from it before the last election, and now the fund is effectively all over, with the exception of some ongoing training and journalists placed in jobs between 2021 and this year. But on Wednesday, the Prime Minister was pressed for a response to his deputy's bribery claims, and Christopher Luxon seemed not that bothered by them, and he added this. You know, he, he may not have expressed it the way that I would express it, but, you know, the, the view about the Public Interest Fund is, is a view that's held by many New Zealanders to say that was not a good programme or a good idea. Now, the perception that the Public Interest Journalism Fund could compromise the media was what mattered, the Prime Minister said, whether it was right or wrong. And that might be true if public opinion on this had been driven by what sceptical politicians and pundits had had to say about the fund in the media. But just two months ago, New Zealand On Air released its annual Public Awareness and Attitude Survey, and the pollsters at Kantar found more than two-thirds of 600 people surveyed mid-year liked New Zealand On Air's public interest journalism. And that was a higher approval rating than for television programmes, online media, community broadcasting or radio programmes, also funded from the public purse by New Zealand On Air. Only local music artists' output was more popular. Now, the approval rating for the public interest journalism had dropped this year, but in its first year of the Public Interest Journalism Fund 2021, it jumped to 76%. But interestingly, these fresh figures haven't appeared in any news story or any political press release about the Public Interest Journalism Fund and fact-free perceptions of media bribery. Though Mr Peter's media problems have been much talked about this week, they're not among the 49 priority points that the government unveiled this week for its first 100 days. But there is a lot there to be debated and understood before the end of this year. Much of it will be unpicking policies and plans put in place previously 
by Labour, prompting the spin-off's Toby Manhire to call this the Control-Z government. There's also a mini-budget that's been mooted and big job cuts for the public service and a pledge to keep Parliament going until just before Christmas. Plenty then for our TV current affairs shows and politics programmes to get stuck into for the rest of the year, much of which are also funded by public interest journalism these days via New Zealand On Air and Te Paho. But the News Hub Nation show on three has already tuned out for the year. That is all from us for now from our final studio programme this election year. Thank you for watching. Namahinui, and we'll see you again next weekend at our famous live Christmas party show. At its annual Christmas party episode this weekend, the News Hub cast, politicians and the pundits chatted, drank and even sang together with the News Hub cameras hovering. And as it usually does each year, it all looked like great fun for them, but less valuable though for the small number of viewers and all the other citizens paying for it from the public purse. It'll be interesting to know if any members of the government who turned up considered it to be wasteful spending or not. But News Hub Nation's end leaves the field open for their rivals at Q&A at TVNZ, like Jack Tame. However... Just so you know, next week is our final show of 2023. Hey, Teera Wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. And after this weekend, Jack Tame and co aren't back till February. Now, following Q&A on TVNZ1 on Sundays is Marae, a handy forum for debating significant Māori issues for the incoming government, such as, for example, the rollback of the anti-smoking measures. But it turns out that Marae is already off-air and on holiday. Here's host Scotty Morrison winding up their year last Sunday. We'll be back next year, Aotearato, but until then, we hope your holidays are restful and safe. Kia haumaru, ngā manakitanga hoki o te wā, kia koutou katoa, kia ora tato. Well, that's nice work if you can get it on the face of it. But why, at a time of huge political change and activity, are all our main weekly TV current affairs shows vanishing until February at the earliest? Well, the reason for that is that they're all publicly funded on an annual basis by New Zealand On Air for a set number of episodes, usually 38 or 40 for the calendar year. And effectively, that means the shows are rationed. And politicians really concerned about the quality of our journalism might want to ask how we spend almost $300 million of public money a year on media, but still don't have a TV show focusing on what they're doing for almost three months of the year. Last week, both Q&A and News Hub Nation took to social media to thank the government's broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air profusely for funding them again to a similar level for 2024. But never mind thanking the bureaucrats, Thank the taxpayers who pay for the shows, which are not always on air, as it turns out, when they could really use their news. And given that the likes of Q&A and News Hub Nation cost the thick end of a million dollars a year each, they might also ask New Zealand on air, why can't they be staggered so that at least one of them is still working while our politicians are, even if that means that the journalists get a shorter summer break. Who wields the power? Well, that's the question on the front page of this weekend's edition of the Wellington paper, The Post, which published a ranking of the 50 most powerful people in and around the capital. And coming in at number seven was the city's mayor, Tori Fano, though The Post said that her status was in jeopardy. And that's because she'd admitted to a drinking problem this week, following what The Post described as weeks of torrid rumours about her behaviour. 
And just two days earlier, her behaviour out on one recent night led the Post's front page as well. That story said that Torifano was, in the Post's words, again forced to defend allegations of drunken behaviour in public after what the Post understood was an incident that took place at a central Wellington bar two weekends ago and rumoured to have been recorded by a third party. And rumour was a key part of the story because while the where and the when was clear in the Post story, those who read to the end of it were still left wondering what had happened that day and who knew about it and who might have recorded or even seen the evidence of it. In her statement, Tori Fano said it was to her great embarrassment and shame that an incident of her, drunk in public, seemed to have been recorded. But the Post said that the co-owner of the Havana bar was perplexed because he was there and he said there were no problems that night and the mayor and her friends weren't intoxicated. Well, the front page of the Post on Thursday may not have been a surprise to RNZ listeners who heard Checkpoint host Lisa Owen the day before. Tori Farno has admitted to more drunken antics in a central city bar. She has confirmed to RNZ that she has a drinking problem after multiple council sources, including supporters of the mayor, told RNZ about footage showing her in an intoxicated state. But Tori Fano's statement, seen in full by MediaWatch, doesn't acknowledge any drunken antics, and Checkpoint reporter Nick James chose his words very carefully after that. Several sources have confirmed the mayor was at a popular Cuba Street establishment on Saturday afternoon uh, two weeks ago with friends uh, having a a rowdy time and that this has uh, apparently been captured on video. And Nick James went on to say this on Checkpoint. RNZ has spoken to several councillors. Most had uh, had heard the story and knew about the video in circulation, although they all denied having seen the footage themselves. RNZ's subsequent online news story said it had put the allegations to Torifano's office after it learned of footage circulating. But RNZ and other media picking up the story have yet to confirm the existence of that footage, let alone what it might show, which may or may not be newsworthy. On News Talk ZB's Wellington Morning Show the next day, the local host Nick Mills made heavy use of the word apparently. Apparently there's a video floating around, or about to float around, with Wellington Mayor at a bar, and apparently it's not good viewing. So let's not beat around the bush. Let's get right into it. Tory Fano, Wellington Mayor, is again forced to defend herself against drunken behaviour at a Wellington bar. It happened apparently two weeks ago. Meanwhile, for TBNZ News that night, reporter Anna White summed it all up this way. Details of the incident at Havana two weeks ago are unclear, but Fano says she was drunk and, to her shame, seems to have been recorded. One of the bar's owners there that night says the mayor was just having a good night. I just really do not like the fact that people can't go out, no matter what your status is, and just have a good time, and lies have been told about you that you were absolutely out of control in a bar, when clearly we were all here and we did not witness that at all. Now, after RNZ broke the story, the spin-off's Wellington editor, Joel McManus, called every Wellington city councillor about it, and other sources, but said he found absolutely no evidence that any footage exists. And while many social media accounts also claimed a video was out there, and some said it showed something much more scandalous than just drinking late in a bar, 
Joel McManus said every social media account posting on the subject seemed to have heard it was circulating on a different platform. Now on his online platform, The Platform, on Thursday, host Sean Plunkett did air a lurid account of what some people had said and that was in a run-up to an interview with the Wellington City Councillor Nicola Young who's urged the Mayor to resign. And look, I'm going to be frank with you, I haven't seen this video. God, I've heard so many people last night who have. I, I need to ask, have you? Um, I have not. I have spoken to people, or people have rung me about it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, uh, the uh, series of events as I described them, would that be what you have heard? Councillor Young subsequently told the spin-off that she believed the video footage did exist because, she said, one who has seen it is a very respectable Wellingtonian. But the spin-off got no response when it asked who that might be. And when asked for a comment this weekend, Councillor Young told The Post, I think I've said my piece, I'm not on a witch hunt. Well, Sean Plunkett told Platform listeners on Friday it was really only Torifano's own statement to RNZ which piqued his interest in the first place. And I didn't raise it and I didn't say there was a video. She said there was a video. Um, and I haven't seen the video yet and I haven't found anyone who said there is the video. And to be honest, I've got way better things to do with my journalistic time. But as we heard earlier in Tori Fano's only public comment on this so far, she's only said that she seems to have been recorded that night. Though, of course, Tori Fano has also had ample opportunity to answer the media's questions about what happened that night, which she has so far declined. Now, Tori Fano is, of course, far from the first mayor whose after-hours behaviour has hit the headlines in a damaging way. Back in 2010, for example, Sunday Star Times revelations led to calls for the resignation of Andrew Williams as the mayor of North Shore. And ten years ago, Mayor Len Brown's affair became long-running headline fodder when political opponents used it to discredit him during his re-election campaign. But that affair was confirmed by the other party to it at the time, and Andrew Williams admitted to his behaviour on the North Shore that was reported back in 2010. But while Torifano has said she was drunk in public on the 18th of November, no one has put on the record anything other than the rumours about any alleged antics more than two weeks after they're alleged to have happened. And, as we heard, the bar owner, who's the only witness who's on the record, has said he saw nothing like what's been reported so far. So what then are the risks of running rumours in the news? For years, several scurrilous rumours about Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's partner Clark Gayford circulated widely online and in gossip. And in 2018, TVNZ inquiries to police about them prompted an extraordinary statement from the police commissioner saying that it was untrue that the Prime Minister's partner was, or ever had been, under investigation for anything. And several newsrooms got a lawyer's letter after that, reminding them that the rumours were highly defamatory. In 2021, Today FM's new Tova show knew it was flirting with danger a little bit when it did a satirical song about the rumours. <laughs> we've addressed every single rumour that we've heard. And can I say it's all a parody, which means none of it's true. Yeah. Yay. 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 And it also Allegedly. means you can't do us for defamation. Yay! Allegedly. And in August last year, Clark Gayford received a payment and an apology from NZME Radio after a podcast aired what it called damaging and untrue comments based on rumours about Mr Gayford that were baseless lies. Now, Tori Fano's case is a bit different. A Friday night with a friend became national news four months ago. After that, she said she was tipsy and she said she'd changed the way that she socialised in public in Wellington in the future.
And this week, Tori Whanau has, in her own words, admitted to an alcohol problem, prompting stories and commentary in the media about whether she's really fit for the job of mayor. But while a public figure's performance in a public role and how a public figure behaves in a public place are all legitimate matters of public interest, are the news media running a risk here reporting the existence of what the Post called torrid rumours without any solid evidence yet that they're actually true? Nicole Morham is a law professor at Victoria University in Wellington and also an editor of the Oxford University Press book, The Law of Privacy in the Media. All public figures retain some degree of privacy in, in what they do in their, their private time. There are, there are a few factors here, though, which I think probably put this on the side of the line where you'd say there was a public interest which overrode it. The first one which you've already alluded to is it's in a public place and, and when you're in a public place your reasonable expectation of privacy is likely to be diminished. And then when it comes to the public interest I think this falls into a couple of categories which have been pretty clearly recognised. The first one is the incident raised questions about someone's fitness for public office and the, the courts have recognised that lots of times. The, se- the second thing that's in um, at issue here is the question of her drinking it w- was put into the public domain after the last set of negative publicity. She said that she was moving on from that. And so I think that the the second uh, factor that would be play, play here would be has she put that now into the public um, domain herself by claiming that she's changed her ways. The decisions that we've had um, would say that this probably falls on the other side of the line. Mainstream media have been careful not to publish the details of what's said to be, you know, the so-called torrid rumours. Torrid was the word used by the Post. So are they then on safe ground, given that they have asked questions about a supposed video, but then no details on something they can't themselves substantiate? So they've got two defences that they can use. One would be truth, that, that whatever they're saying is true, and the other one would be that there was responsible journalism in the public interest. What's quite interesting about the story is when you look at the RNZ story and some and some of the other early ones is that they don't actually say exactly what it is that they're alleging. So in terms of what's the sting of the article, it seems to be that there was some discreditable behaviour at some point in some unnamed place. So that they're so unspecific about the, the nature of the allegation that I think that proving that they have been responsible in making it is probably going to be um, relatively easy for them because they haven't said anything in particular. So that's the... Um, and then the question would be, well, you know, were you responsible in communicating in that? At which point I imagine that they'll say, well, we we gave the mayor an opportunity to comment, to, to refute any allegation, and rather than refute it, she actually confirmed it. And at that point, um, you probably say that there was enough to uh, to be on safe ground in publishing the fact that there was some discreditable conduct, which seemed to be all that was said. So I feel like the story's played out in a slightly odd way. But yes, the mayor made a statement in response being asked these questions, which did refer to an incident on that night and admitting being drunk at the time. Even if they haven't seen this video, I don't really know that she did something truly newsworthy on that night or not. The mayor saying that, well, that's a green light. Was this of the public interest and were they responsible? I think probably that that threshold's been crossed, partly because they were unspecific in the way that they reported it and um, the mayor confirmed that that had had taken place. So I I think probably if you're asking that question, then probably that's enough, unless there's some reason why they should have thought that this was particularly unreliable or there was the person who brought the allegation had a clear grudge to bear. Um, It seems that they probably have done enough. Well, many people, including councillors, who have talked about this, they've said they've heard about a video and they've heard about 
lurid conduct, if I could call it that, by the mayor, which this video may have in it. Um, but anyone who actually airs those claims of what was done, if that's not true or, or cannot be proven, are they at risk of a defamation claim? I would have thought so. If you repeat an allegation which has been made, the fact that you were not the first one to make the allegation is not a defence. So there's a thing called the repetition rule of if I repeat some outrageous allegation about a person which is all over Twitter, if it turns out it's not true and I can't show I was responsible, then I can be sued in defamation um, just like every other person. And isn't your case weaker if you admit that you, you haven't seen for yourself the claims that are being made and you don't know necessarily if, if they exist and, and you're speaking about that on the air? Well, there's, again, the two defences you've got are... Uh, Truth and the other one, or alternatively, you'd be back on this public interest, responsible journalism defence, and then you'd have to say, well, that would depend on what what evidence he had before he made those allegations on air. So if he'd if he'd spoken to somebody and it was a very reliable source, it's but once you start going into that level of detail, then you're you've got a much higher hurdle to clear. It's not that you were just saying, oh, that sounds like there was some kind of discreditable drunken behaviour. You're saying this is what. Um, I understood happened. You're in much more dangerous territory in terms of the law of defamation, obviously. And, and to come back to your original question, the fact that uh, other people have said it first online is is not a defence on its own. If you leave a vacuum the way we have in this instance or the way that we've seen in this instance, people will go to fill it. And I think that's part of what we've seen in the way that the story has played out, that was, there are people saying have um, some of these earlier media um, stories come out when there wasn't enough evidence to back them up. That's one set of um, assumptions. And then there's another set of assumptions which is saying, oh my gosh, the media is protecting her. They're not saying this information which they've clearly got and they're sitting on it in order to protect her reputation. I think that's not a particularly desirable state of affairs. Mm-hmm. Into vacuums, people will make assumptions and then and then you, you end up in this position where the story's being fed and fed about what's going on. And As you mentioned, she's been given opportunities to say what happened, to maybe put something into that vacuum. So for people following the the stories thinking, is there smoke, is there fire? If somebody isn't taking an opportunity to respond, would you say that actually makes the problem worse that you talked about? It puts people in a difficult position if they're asked about something for for good reason don't want to respond like and then dignifying it with a response exactly and then and then you're seeking the denial of everything exactly so you're seeking the denial in order to then justify the story so i suppose you would have had the option of saying no comment you know some people have said here's someone who's got a health problem and wants to carry on in her job and that's an important job and won't be made any easier if she's not given space in fact Tori Fano appealed to the media for uh, space and understanding. Does that change the picture, the fact that there is, no matter if it's someone who's a public figure who ends up in the middle of a news story, media must take account of that? It's actually quite close to the facts of the leading English decision on this, which has involved Naomi Campbell, who has had a drug addiction problem, I mean, she, or drug addiction, and she was seeking treatment at Narcotics Anonymous. And what the court did there was say... The media was entitled to correct the false impression she had given quite explicitly that she was not involved in any kind of drug taking. But they said there is a limit about how that publicity is done. So I think that being in the glare of um, public disapprobation is a very stressful thing for any any person. And, and the courts have tended to say, have said, you know, look, that's, that comes with a job that's, that's a requirement of, of being accountable – but there are nonetheless some limits to how that's done. And in in that particular instance in the Campbell case, reporting on the details of her narcotics anonymous treatment, sending a reporter to photograph her as she arrives at that 
at that treatment and left, that was stepping across a line. In terms of principles where they've landed is, yes, you can report the information, but it's not complete open season and that you do need to take into account to some degree the vulnerability of the person when you are um, making those editorial decisions. That was Nicole Morham, law professor at Victoria University in Wellington, also an editor of the Oxford University Press book called The Law of Privacy and the Media. And we'll be returning to this story on Media Watch as it develops, as it seems sure to do. Last weekend was a landmark one at RNZ with Kim Hill going out one last time on RNZ National on a Saturday morning and having a long sit-down chat as well with Jim Mora on Sunday morning. And the Saturday one includes Kim dismissing the notion that she might have frequently been dismissive of people texting and criticisms down the years. But y'all have the wrong end of the stick. Steve says, Sorry Kim, but you definitely do denigrate people who don't agree with you. Sounds awful. I do not, Steve. You idiot. Hayden Donnell ran through that and some of the other tributes in the media this past week for Kim in this week's Midweek Media Watch, which was on air last Wednesday. That's online or in your podcast feed if you missed it. And the same day, another long-serving journalist and broadcaster left the scene with, well, a little less fanfare, but certainly plenty of good wishes and admiration. Todd Nile brought down the curtain on four decades of journalism last Wednesday, much of it as an RNZ reporter and broadcaster, but more recently as the Auckland Issues reporter for Stuff. And before he retired this week, Hayden Donnell sat down with this remarkable reporter on local matters. And while Todd in recent years was dedicated to local issues in Auckland, as he himself said, he was just one part of a big city media machine that was keeping an eye on things there. However, local news and issues in the regions don't always get such a dedicated focus. Next week here on Media Watch, Hayden Donnell reports back from Horofenua on who's doing the business at the grass and flax routes there, with also a small incursion across the border into Kapiti while he was at it. But for this weekend, that's all from us here at Media Watch. We'll be back, though, with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch after the news at 10 next Wednesday on Nights with Mark Leishman, and then back again at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.